Dave, good to be back with you, our Ellerslie family, and I truly mean that this time. I travel quite a bit, but between traveling in July and traveling with family for holidays in August, it's nice to be back. I hope you're enjoying this nice, cool fall weather we're having so far. Um, It's coming this week, but uh, it is my joy to be here with you because you are my church family, but it's also a joy to be here to speak uh, alongside Pastor Dave and the rest of the staff on this uh, topic of inescapable mission. I am passionate about uh, trying to figure out how we can be good neighbors, and I'm excited to fit into this. If you were not here last week um, and did not hear Dave's message, or if you had not watched it or listened to it, I encourage you to do so. Uh, I say this wholeheartedly, I, I, I love all Dave's messages, but I believe last week was one of the best I've heard from him, if not the best, and just setting before us a challenge for this inescapable mission, to be on a task with, with Jesus and the work that he's called to do. It was such a great message that YouTube uh, filmed it and put it on their website, and uh, I thought this group would get that more than uh The first group didn't get it either, but uh, maybe I should have stopped after that. But it really was a great message. This idea that we are um, to be compelled by love to bring the hope of the gospel, this idea of reconciliation to everyone that God puts in the natural path of our lives, those that we cross regularly and those that we can seek out to share the hope of the gospel with. This idea that we are called to be ambassadors for Christ, to speak on his behalf. Um, That is not a challenge we should take lightly. And last week's message did not allow us to take it lightly. It It was to the heart and to the point of what we should be about. So today, I, you know, I'm kind of coming in in the middle of this. I've been asked to talk a little bit about this art of neighboring. But we're going to start today where Dave started last week in a couple of moments. I'll, I'll get there. And then I'm going to challenge us with just three questions around the art of neighboring. Now, I can't go far into the weeds. I don't have a lot of time to develop a lot around that because I don't have a lot of time. And Dave is going to pick up the conversation next week around the art of hospitality. And a lot of neighboring has to do with hospitality, and we'll get to that. So today I just want to ask three questions. The first question and the third question I cannot answer for you. Only you can answer for yourselves. The second one, we'll look at some scripture and see what the Lord has to say about that, Jesus Christ himself. And then we'll work all this into our chance to come to the table today to really just um, be reminded of what hospitality truly, truly feels like. Now, we live in a world where we have more people on earth than we've ever had before. Uh, I don't know how many billions we have now, but we're up there, right? But higher than we've ever been. We have more tools and ways to connect us than ever possible. It is truly a small world we live in. When I can be on Facebook or texting with friends I have all over the world, when I can get a prayer request in real time from Africa or, or Asia, that we live in a time where we are truly able to connect. But the reality is, is that we are the most socially disconnected culture generation ever. 
Sigma Research did some research on people's connectedness. And what they found was, and this is U.S. stats, but I guarantee it will transfer to Canada, that 60% of adults feel lonely most of the time, if not all of the time. Six out of 10 adults. And that trans, you know, transfers to every ethnic group, every age, every everything. But 60% of adults feel lonely most of the time, if not all of the time. They also found out that we annually, or the states annually, and once again, it would transfer over to Canada, spend $6.7 billion, with a B, billion dollars, treating issues that would have been prevented, avoided, or eradicated if people had more social connection. The simple answer is that people just need to connect to one another. Many of you know we live in Leduc. My family and I live in Leduc. We've been there for about 22 years now. And we love Leduc. Over uh, the last 13, 14 years, I've been able to be a part of um, working with the city a couple of times on a satisfaction uh, survey they do to find out how satisfied and how rooted in the community people are. I've done two of those with them, and I've been on that committee for two times. And over those last 13 years, the only area where Leduc has ranked lower than it did the previous three years was in the area of connectedness. People say they do not feel as connected in community as they used to. And the question was worded that if you had need arise in your life, would you have people in the community around you that you could go to for help? And over the last, uh, I think it's about eight years that this has been done, over the last eight years, that has dropped by 14%. Now, a lot of that has to do with our community. We are a transient community in Leduc. We have a lot of oil patch people and a lot of other people that come in. Over half of our community at any given time now have only been in the community for about two or three years. But the simple fact is that if they had a need arise, they did not feel that they could go to a neighbor or somebody else in the community and ask for help. We have been called to make sure that we move away from that, that as believers, we've been called by Christ in the great commandment to love him with everything and to love our neighbors ourselves. And we want to look at that today. Howard Lawrence, real quick, Howard Lawrence, uh, some of you may know that name. He pastored Highlands Baptist Church here in Edmonton for many years. And Howard has a huge heart for neighboring, so much that he is not in his church any longer, but he is working for the city of Edmonton, helping people develop as block connectors to get their neighbors connected with each other. And as Howard talks about this, he says, Dennis, this is not a hard thing to sell. Because whenever you talk about neighboring, half the people in the room used to have good neighbors or good neighboring, and they've lost it. The other half have not had it, and they want it. My generation, I believe, had it, and we've kind of lost that. A younger generation might say, I, I just need to you know, know who my neighbors are and really reach out and care for them. So I told you I wanted to ask three questions today. And the first question is kind of the first question that Pastor Dave started with last week as well. So sorry for stealing your, your stuff, but here it goes. Are we truly compelled by love for our neighbors. He talked about 
compelling love. Are we truly compelled by our love for our neighbors to reach out to them, to love them, to be there for them, to build relationships with them, and to eventually maybe have the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel, or at least share it through our love. After the first service, somebody came up to me and said, I've been loving my neighbor for many years, and the opportunity has not arisen. What should I do? And I said, keep loving. Keep loving. The opportunity will come, and actually the opportunity has probably already come. This person sees your love for them. And for a long time, working in my church and working with different groups, I've struggled to know how do we get people to understand what it means to truly be compelled by love and not make people our projects. That is my pet peeve when we make people our projects. When we love them because we want them to do something or say something or pray something or come somewhere with me. And if you don't think your neighbor knows they're a project when you make them a project, I implore you to ask them. So if we love our neighbor only because we want a chance to share the gospel with them, which I hope we do want to share with them, but if we only love them for that, then they'll know that. If our sole goal of loving our neighbor is to get them to pray a prayer or come to a Bible study or come to a, you know, a group at the church or come to church with me, they will know that as well. But they will also know without a shadow of a doubt, if we love them, just to love them. The best example I can give are my daughters. I say my daughters because I have no sons. Don't think I'm leaving the, kid, the boys out. I have, but I'll say it true of my sons-in-law. We have five daughters. Three of them are here in the room today. And if I speak, we have a new rule somebody told me about. If I speak about them in church, I have to take them to Dairy Queen afterwards. Um, so I'm, not, I'm just pointing them out. I'm not really talking about them. But I love my daughters. Three we have by birth, two by adoption. And they are all five equally my daughters. And they all five equally have my heart. I love them with everything that I am and have. Never once, and I got hung up on this when I did this in the first service, but never once have I ever thought or said, I love Hannah Rebecca, Rachel, Abby, or Lydia, because I want them to accept Christ. I have never chosen to love them so they would do that important thing. Now, don't get me wrong. I love them so much that I want the most wonderful life for them. And the best I can say, the most wonderful life for them is to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But I don't choose to love them to get to that point. Because I love them, I want them to get to that point of knowing Christ. And that is the difference between choosing to love our neighbor to get them to do something versus just loving them. And out of that, our hope and our aspiration for them is that they would come to know Christ. Do we love our neighbors well enough, hard enough, deeply enough to hope the very best for their lives? So that's the first point. It's kind of a posture question. How do we posture ourselves with our neighbors? 
Well, the next question then is, who is my neighbor? And as soon as I say that, some of you go, I know where we're going in the scripture today, and you're right. We're going to look at the passage, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you have your Bibles, turn them on, open them up, fire them up, whatever you got to do, and turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25. This is a chance that Jesus has to kind of lay out this idea of who is my neighbor. So verse 25 of Luke 10, and we're going to read through this parable. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now let me stop right there. This, this, this expert in the law, some say lawyer, some say a, a teacher of the law. This was not somebody trained classically at a secular university to take a case to the Supreme Court. This is a religious leader trained in the law of Moses, of the Torah, the five books of the Old Testament. This person would have probably memorized those five books and known all 600 and some laws of the Hebrew scriptures backwards and forwards. Some believe this might have been a Sadducee and some say a Pharisee. And I would predict that it's probably a Pharisee because he is concerned about making sure he obeys the law correctly. And he's asking about eternal life, kind of pointing to resurrection, which the Sadducees did not believe in. But this expert stands up to test Jesus. Other versions of this would say to trap Jesus. He doesn't like what Jesus is doing, how he's a threat to the religious elite, and he's asking this question. But Jesus turns it on him, as we know, possibly. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? So he turns it back on this expert, says, what do you think it is? What do you think the most important command is? Or what must you do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus could have easily said you can do nothing to inherit eternal life. But he asked him, what do you think? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, and from Leviticus. He's putting two things together to say these are the most important laws or commands to love God with everything and to love our neighbors ourselves. And Jesus responds, you answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. So Jesus doesn't answer the question. He flips the question on this guy as he often does. But he goes on and says, but he, the, 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 the lawyer, wanting to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? At this point, he wants to go from testing Jesus to justifying himself. He wants to make sure that he has an opportunity to say, yep, I've done that. Now what he is doing is he's asking for a clarification Kind of like the Supreme Court. He's going to Jesus to say, okay, but then who is my neighbor? And this is what one author said that he was probably hoping to hear. And this is one man's interpretation. Frederick Buchner said this. Very well, this is how he expected maybe Jesus to respond. Very well, henceforth a neighbor, hereafter referred to as the party of the first part, shall be defined 
as meaning a person of Jewish descent whose legal residence is within a radius of no more than three statute miles from one's own legal residence. Unless there's another person of Jewish descent, hereafter referred to as the party of the second part, living closer to the party of the first part than, than one is oneself, in which case the party of the second part is to be construed as the neighbor to the party of the first part, and one is then oneself relieved of all responsibility of any kind to the matters hereunto appertaining. He wanted to be told that he was only to have to love those around him and only those within a certain radius because that's what the law said. But we need to see what Jesus unpacks here. As he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't give him an answer. He gives him a story. And he develops a story of the Good Samaritan. He goes on and says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a pretty common path. There was one path mainly between Jericho and Jerusalem. It was pretty narrow, about 18 inches at some points through rocky areas where bandits and robbers hid all the time. The man was, this man was going down, a very generic man. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he, looked, he took pity on him. And other versions would say he took compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, poured on oils and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, two days wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, some of us know the story very well, but this man is robbed and beaten and left for dead. And it says they passed on the other side. The priest comes and passes on the other side. Well, at some points, this, this path is only 18 inches wide. That, well, that's not 18. This is 18 inches. So most likely, he didn't walk to the other side. They walked over him and went on their way. The priest first and then the Levite. Now, that path between Jericho and Jerusalem was a common path for people going to Jerusalem to the temple, but also especially for the priest and Levites who served in the temple. They would go to Jerusalem, they would serve two weeks, they would come back and have two weeks at home, and then they would go back and forth. We don't know which way any of these people are going, but all we know is that the priest steps over him and keeps moving. Not the best choice, I'll give you that, but the reality is that we can make this look worse than it is. The priest knows the law. He knows that if he touches a dead body or if he's tainted by blood, he cannot fulfill his duties in the temple so he maybe steps by to keep his duty we don't know now the Levite 
supports the priest in the, in the temple. He comes behind him because there was n- they never wanted this point where the priest and the Levite would be in the same group of people together because the Levite might show up the, the priest. So he'd follow behind. But he does the same thing and possibly for the same reasons. Now here's where the story gets interesting. This teacher of the law who's asking this story, he knows where the story is going. The priest goes over and keeps going. The Levite steps over and keeps moving. We know what's going to happen. The super Pharisee is going to come in and save the day. And Jesus sends a zinger like nobody's ever seen before. And he says, and now a Samaritan comes along. Now, I don't have time to get into it, but the Samaritan was not very loved by, Samaritans were not very loved by the Jewish people. One commentator I read said that the best way we could say it today that would carry the weight of how they felt about Samaritans would use the term, then a pedophile terrorist came along and saw this man and had compassion on him and bandaged him and took care of him and then took him to an inn and kept him overnight and then paid two days wages to say, take care of him and there's more that's needed, I'll pay later. People question, well, why did the Samaritan leave? Why didn't he stay? And most likely because he wasn't welcome in that town either. And he got out but came back to settle up and to meet the needs of that person. This would have blown the mind of the Pharisee lawyer. And at the end, Jesus says very simply, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He didn't say your neighbor is. He said, who was a neighbor to this man? And the teacher probably hated to say these words. He couldn't say the word Samaritan. So he said the one who had mercy on him. Compassion and mercy in Luke's writing are always signs of either Jesus, God, or an agent of God himself. So who was Jesus to this man? And he answers correctly, even though he didn't give the full answer. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and be like the one you despise. So the second question of who is my neighbor, the teacher of the law wanted him to say my near buyer, the person who was close to me. Because that's what the law of the Old Testament basically said, those who are close to me. So what he was saying was, Please tell me it's those within a very close little knit group of mine and most likely Jewish people who look like me, smell like me, eat like me, worship like me, do everything like me. Those people I will neighbor. Please tell me that's who I'm called to neighbor. And Jesus just blew that theory out of the water and says, no, it's not the, not the person. But I want to start by the fact that our neighbor is our nearby er. We cannot deny the fact that God has planted all of us in certain places that we might be the light of the gospel and salt in a world that so desperately needs it. I have a friend that challenged me one time and I said, well, you know, my neighbor is all of Leduc because I have people all over town I work with. He says, yes, but I'm not going to let you off the hook for McKay Court. How many houses on McKay Court? He said, Dennis. I said, well, there's, there's, there's 10 he said, how many houses on that side street of yours? I said, there's four more kind of within that thing. He goes, and those 11 or those 14 houses are your neighborhood. And those are your neighbors that God has called you to. We need to know these. 
people. We need to care for these people. The lawyer knew that the word neighbor comes from the root for near. So he was saying, just tell me the nearby or the people close to me and I'll love them. But Jesus is going to take it a little further, but we cannot remove ourselves from that. Jesus, in his incarnation, left heaven, came to earth and walked among his creation that he might reach us. And we've been called to walk the road of the incarnation with our neighbors and our friends, our classmates, our teammates, uh, wherever we go. There is a book called The Art of Neighboring, and I didn't take this title. I didn't make it up myself. I've never had an original thought in my life. But I stole this title. It's a book written by Dave Runyon and Jay Pathak. And they were pastors in a small community outside of Dallas or outside of Denver. And they met with their mayor, with other pastors, and they asked this question, what can we do as a faith community to make the city a better place? And Bob Fry, the mayor of this community, not a believing man, said this. The major issues that our community faces would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. They walked out of that meeting and said, brothers, our non-believing mayor just encouraged us to teach our congregants to live and follow, live after and follow Jesus. He just encouraged us to teach our people to be good neighbors, which is the great commandment, to love God and to love our neighbors. Well, they started to kind of look at this process and they started to do research. And I don't know if you have it up here. They, they came up with something like this. And we, we use this in our church in Leduc. This is a magnet we created for our folks. And hear my heart, not to make people our projects, but to see that we know our neighbors. And they put this square in the middle and said, that's you right here. This is your house. If you live in a typical neighborhood, you've got like eight people around you, eight neighbors that touch your, your property line. And he, they asked questions to ask if these people knew their neighbors. And what happened was, what they found out was across the board, 10% of people knew those eight neighbors' names. Only, just names. One out of 10 knew their neighbors' names. Then they asked further questions. They found out that only 3% of people could tell, them, tell you something about their neighbor other than just their name. They work here. They came from Manitoba. They have kids in soccer or anything just benign like that. But only 3% could give that. And then they asked how many people can tell us something deep about their neighbors, something about their dreams and aspirations, their hurts, their, their struggles. How many people... What percentage of people can say something that deep about their neighbor? And the answer was 1%. One out of 100 people know their neighbors enough to know something deep about them. So I come back to the same question we started with. Do we love them? Are we compelled by love enough to get to know them? Not that they have to accept Christ. Not that they have to come to church. Not that they have to do this. But do we just really love them that much that we can get to know not just their name, not just a few things about them, but really get to know them? We need to do that. So the first answer to who is my neighbor is the near buyer. God's not going to let us off the hook on that. But he goes deeper. This is reminiscent of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you've been told this You've heard it say this, I say this. 
He says that, you know what, you know the law, but I'm going to take the law further for the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this Lord that we serve. Things are going to be even more deeply entrenched. So he goes from this idea of who is my neighbor, that person close to me, to who is my neighbor, and that is anybody that is in need, anybody uh, that is hurt, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the lonely, the skeptic, the downtrodden, and even our enemy. So he asked the question differently then. Jesus back to him. He says, so which one was the neighbor? And he's saying to this teacher, don't worry about who your neighbor is. Think about who you are called to be a neighbor to. And how far do you have to go to do that? It doesn't matter. We're called to reach out and to care for those people. So we're called to love them, to know them. Our neighbors close to us and our neighbors far away. Anytime we see that somebody is in need. And the third question kind of comes back to this whole idea is who are you a neighbor to? Who are we inviting into our world? Who are we inviting into our proximity? Who are we inviting even to our table? What needs in the lives of people have we seen that we now need to respond to? What do we do to draw them in into community with us even though they don't live within that predefined three-mile radius of our home and they look different than we do? They may not think like we do. But who are we being called to be a neighbor to? I never really thought about this very much until a few years back. or man, It's probably a few, more than a few now, but about 15 years ago. I was trying to figure out why God has put this desire in me to make sure that everybody feels welcome, that everybody feels included. And, I, and I'm over the top on that. I, you know, I, hurt, I get stressed about it. You know, that person doesn't look like they fit in and that person needs to be included. And sometimes I just need to let it go. But God had put this on my heart. And I didn't know it until I was putting um, my, my kind of personal story together for a leadership development course I was a part of. As I laid out my, my timeline of my life, it became very clear in some ways why this was important to me. I know some of you will find this hard to believe, but I'm not Canadian by birth. And uh, this great Canadian accent I have, you're going, well, obviously, I don't know if I sound Canadian or not. But I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was raised around Nashville, Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee, and then eventually moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. And then we moved to Oregon when I was a teenager. But I was raised in the deep south in those mid-years of the whole issue of racial reconciliation and you know the, uh, just all that was going on around there. I remember living in Nashville, Tennessee when Martin Luther King was assassinated. I remember coming home from church to, uh, one Sunday night to armed guards on every street corner telling my dad to get us home and keep us home. And then about a year after that, we moved from Nashville to Knoxville. We had moved into a home that had been overrun by trees and weeds. Stuff grows quickly there, and it had not been, this house had not been lived in in over a year. And my dad was not very handy when it came to yard work, so he needed some help. And my mom asked him, what are you going to do? He says, well, I'm going to go down to the motel where I normally stay when I would come for business. 
And they have a groundskeeper there by the name of Leroy. And I'm going to go ask Leroy if he'll do some side jobs to help me out. And dad drove down there across town and he asked Leroy and Leroy committed and Leroy came to our home that first Friday night that we were there. Hot, muggy summer night in Knoxville, Tennessee. If you've never experienced it, you don't want to. Uh, but uh, hard labor, hot heat. And it, you have to understand, Leroy is a black man. And he comes into our yard, he's working with my dad, and my sister and I are playing around, and at some point my mom comes out and says, hey, it's time for dinner. And my sister and I run to the door with great excitement because it's Friday night, and that means hamburgers. And my mom made great hamburgers. And my dad turns towards the door, and Leroy turns and starts walking away. And my dad turns, and he says, Leroy, where are you going? He said, I'm going to my truck because I have my lunch kit in there, my lunch, uh, whatever you call it back then, my lunch box. Got a sandwich in there, I'm just gonna eat there. He goes, Les, Mr. Gully, you want me to continue to work? And my dad says, no, you, you don't understand. My wife has made hamburgers. And my wife makes great hamburgers. And we want you to come in and eat with us. And I'll never forget the look on Leroy's face. He said, look my dad in the eyes and he said, Mr. Gully, thank you. But I am a black man and I cannot come into your home. My dad responded without missing a beat. He goes, well, that's just too bad. And Leroy goes, pardon me? He goes, well, it's too bad my kids are going to starve. Because they're not going to eat till you come in and sit at our table and eat with us. That night, best I can remember it as a six-year-old, five-year-old, whatever I was at the time, it took my dad about 45 minutes to talk Leroy into coming into that house. But he did. The next Friday night, it only took 30 minutes. And it got a little quicker each week. But I remember the summer of Leroy being a part of our family. And I'm very thankful that I had a father, a father who grew up on a tobacco farm in Charlotte or in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1931. My dad was forward thinking enough to say that God created us all equal and we are to love each other no matter what the world tells us. I will never forget that look of acceptance and love on Leroy's face as he became just part of our family. We come to the table today for communion, and I hope you got your elements as you came in. But one thing we overlook when we come to communion quite often is the fact that Jesus, on that night when all this was about to go down, he sent some of his followers ahead of him into the, into the town and said, find the room that the master has gotten ready for the, for the Passover feast. Jesus did not have a place to call his own. And yet, for this one night, Jesus made arrangements that he could host the party. This is the only time we see that Jesus' followers come to his table. We don't know whose table it was, but he had prepared it. He had provided it. And he invited people in as their guest as he was the host. Now, why we cannot overlook this is in Palestinian culture. Inviting someone to your table was not a small thing. It was a sign of love and acceptance and where needed forgiveness. And Jesus, as he was preparing this feast that he would do with his followers, that they could repeat regularly afterwards to remember what he had done. Even though they were far from him, he invited them in and accepted them. And showed this as a sign of love, acceptance, and forgiveness. As we come to the table today, 
I hope we'll be reminded of that. Let me pray for our communion and then I'll walk us through that. Father, we come before you today and we ask these very simple questions of do we, are we compelled by love to just truly love our neighbors? Or who is my neighbor? Who have you called us to, to be a neighbor to and to invite in? And Father, as we stand before each other today with this simple bread and this simple juice to represent your broken body and your shed blood, we know that we were invited to your table. And Father, this is a place of acceptance for all people. This is a place for those who call themselves followers of years to be reminded of what you've done. So as those who follow you, Lord, we take part in this today to be reminded of, of, of all that this entails. So we thank you for these elements and this opportunity now in Christ's name. Amen. Paul, as he tells the story, says this. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had broken it, he gave thanks. And it, it take, uh, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul goes on to share, he says, For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we close this out in prayer, I just want us once again to be reminded of the fact that this is an amazing sign of God's love, his acceptance of us, his forgiveness of us. But it is an amazing opportunity for us to understand biblical hospitality. Hospitality in Greek is a, is a, a compound word of meaning brotherly love for the enemy or brotherly love for the stranger. This is not about inviting our greatest friends to a, watch the Super Bowl at our house. It's about inviting those distant from us back into a restored relationship. And that is what we have just celebrated today as we have taken communion together. Let me just ask the Lord's blessing on this one last time and we'll close in our, in our closing song here. Let's pray again. Father, as we come before you, we thank you so much that you loved us enough to die for us, to have your body broken and your blood shed. And we thank you that you loved us enough to bring us back into a restored relationship with you. Might we truly be compelled by love to reach out to those that you have placed around us and those who are far off but yet need the love of Christ. Give us the joy of being present as your ambassadors amongst those that you've called us to. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.